tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This Thursday marks a deadline for bills to cross over from one house to another in order to stay alive this session. There are a number of bills that have to do with creating new collective bargaining units. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden here to tell us who's affected and what's still moving. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So there are four bills this state legislative session that have to do with collective bargaining, and three of them have to do with uh, essential workers. So that includes dispatchers, Honolulu Emergency Services, and adult correctional officers. The state legislature holds the power to create collective bargaining groups, which is unique to the state. Randy Pereira is the executive director of the Hawaii Government Employees Association, known as HGEA. He explains a little bit about the historical context of unit creation. This year, you have four different groups that are vying for their own bargaining unit. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the legislature reacts, because in the past, there was great reluctance to create new units. I don't know, you know, why legislators would be so reluctant, but they were or have been. So this year with EMTs, corrections officers, grad assistants and dispatch, you have four distinct groups that are looking for some kind of independence. And by, by law, the legislature can create units, and it's up to the Hawaii Labor Relations Board to ultimately place occupational groups within an appropriate bargaining unit. But if the unit is created, for example, like the lifeguards were, specifically uh, in statute for lifeguards, then it's pretty much just achieved by the legislature. And I remember when the ocean safety uh, mm-hmm. folks, you know, lobbied uh, to be considered a separate union, you know, because there are lots of back and forth. Do they go with the firefighters, you know? And so, yeah, it's interesting to see how that progressed because it took a few years. It took a few years, and it also really comes down to what job function is. And during these discussions right now, the groups who are lobbying for their own groups are bringing up similar arguments. So staffing is at critically low levels, and the creation of their own collective bargaining units could help recruit and retain more employees for dispatch, emergency services, and ACOs. So they argue that their job functions are very different than the functions in their regular unit that they are currently in. So, for example, Unit 10 houses both emergency services and correctional officers. And you can imagine that the working conditions as well as the hours are very different between these two groups. And emergency dispatchers are in Unit 3, which historically has been clerical and non-supervisory white-collar jobs. However, one argument is that dispatchers align more closely with the functions of first first responders and other essential services. So, historically, there's no rule or objective reason for what constitutes a new unit, but it usually comes down to job function. What we've learned through experience is that the bargaining unit alignment uh, is and can be based on the kinds of job responsibilities that individuals have. There's argument that was made years ago by the sheriffs and the lifeguards that they didn't fit in terms of their job duties and responsibilities with the primarily clerical duties of people in bargaining unit three, which is where they were. If you accept that argument, as the legislature eventually did, then you justified having a separate unit. The dispatch group today, one, their job is different for sure, but we've also been advised by uh, some that are in the management ranks, particularly Uh, those involved with emergency management, that Hawaii will soon enough be implementing an enhanced 911 system, which will further complicate and create a more complex dispatch role. And they, based on that, they believe or have, have suggested to us that there very well could be the need for a separate bargaining unit to allow for negotiations and agreement on very different working conditions for this group. And the state's Department of Human Resources is in opposition to the creation of bargaining units. And Brenna Hanimoto is the director of the state's Department of Human Services Development. She is also the state's chief negotiator. 
I think when we look at what makes sense in terms of whether a group of employees should be carved out and, and negotiate separately, it really speaks to whether the working conditions are, are so varied that we can't address those concerns under the provisions of the current contract. And I think in my experience where we have seen um, differences, we've included specific provisions related to those groups of employees within their current contract language. Or we spread out, we separate out the salary schedules, for example, if, if there's a specific market condition related to one group of employees and we can't uh, fill positions based on the salary schedule that's in place, then we perhaps would have a separate salary schedule for those individuals. You see that in Unit 10, where the EMT and the ACOs are on separate schedules and the healthcare workers are on separate schedules. So there's one last bill, and that has to do with UH grad students, and that is the only bill that has died for the collective bargaining. So with dispatch, the correction officers, and the EMTs, those are all moving forward. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just track your progress. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR Sabrina Bowden. You can read her story online at our website later today. Civil Beat has a story today about the latest results of drug testing among inmates in our prisons. Uh, Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about it. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story that we've got is uh, one that Kevin Dayton did. I know he's been tracking a lot of the the goings on in our prisons and our jails. Yeah, a big place for Kevin. He covers not only uh, the correctional system, but the legislature and uh, rail uh, as well. But this is from new data from public safety looking at January and February. And of the drug tests that were administered, 64 total, over one-fourth of them uh, came back positive or presumed positive. I'll explain presumed in just a moment. But staff um, that Kevin spoke to, staff that were granted anonymity so that they could talk freely and not fear retaliation, uh, said they think that number is actually much, much higher they say there's been a surge of drug smuggling inside Halava Correctional Facility, which is Hawaii's largest prison. Uh, what's more, they're, they're actually calling for help. They, they believe that the warden recognizes there's a problem as well. Yes, and I was just stunned, you know, at those numbers. I mean, wow, that's a lot of uh, drugs to be making their way into the, uh, into the inmate cells. It's amazing. Yeah, and of those uh, positive results, it looks like at least three of them were for methamphetamine, three of them for marijuana. There was another one, uh, a sedative. uh, And there were a number of inmates, 10 total, that refused to take the test. That's where that presumed (laughs) positive comes in. According to public safety, for these folks that said, I'm not going to take a drug test, they're presumed of being guilty or of being positive. Uh, by the way, these, these prisoners that uh, do come out positive, uh, they uh, are sanctioned for their misconduct within the prison. Well, you know, I know that they've really tried to crack down on the contraband that's been coming in uh, to our jailhouses and prisons, and they have a special you know, area for visitors, right, so that you don't have uh, very much contact there's a physical barrier. Yeah, back, uh, this is interesting. Back in 2014, uh, at Halava, which is a minimum, a med- rather a medium security facility, they actually got rid of in-person contacts, uh, family and friends, and they put up these plexiglass barriers, right? And that seemed to have a direct impact, a major impact on cutting down on contraband getting into into the prison system. Of course, public safety says, you know, no positive tests are acceptable, no contraband is acceptable. There is a problem, however, nationwide in correctional systems with, with drugs coming in. And so the question is, where are those drugs coming from? And uh, while Kevin doesn't say as much uh, for Halava, there is a presumption, at least nationally, that it's coming from within the prison, within the guards, the staff that work there. We should say the DPS says, look, you know, our screening is very, very careful. Uh, We're doing the best we can to make sure drugs don't get in there. But clearly there's somewhere along the way where there's a disconnect. And, you know, when uh, prisons, say on the mainland, uh, you know, have their prison guards come in, I mean, usually there's a screening process. So, 
you know, I, I'm sure that uh, if they maybe crack down on that or, or tighten things up, that maybe there'd be less of that contraband coming in. Yeah. And by the way, when these drug tests just happened in January and February, that resulted in cell searches, right? They call them shakedowns. And so that was administered. You know, Kevin points to another incident uh, that he heard about talking to these folks at Halaba where 25 prisoners were being transferred from Halaba, which, as I noted, is a medium security. And they were going to Wyava Correctional Facility. That's a minimum security. And uh, according to Kevin's reporting, uh, a lot of them, these 25, actually failed the pre-administrative, uh, rather the drug test to get him inside. And they had to be sent back to Halava. Well, Kevin checked with public safety, Tony Schwartz, and she said that's not the case at all, uh, that it's false, that really the transfers of prisoners has to do with their custody level, uh, not incidents or rumors of, of incidents of drug smuggling. Well, you know, I guess you go back, though, to the the, the screening Right. Making sure that uh, the guards that are coming through um, aren't bringing uh, anything else with them as they come in. Right. And my guess is bottom line, we're probably going to have more reports on this, but already alarming numbers from DPS only two months into the year. All right. Okay. well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, ooahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's quiz, we're jumping into the history of a decorated veteran of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion. After the war, he attended Harvard Law School and upon graduation in 1951, returned to Hawaii. He set up his legal practice and also worked as a Honolulu City prosecutor. Government service beckoned and in 1954, he was elected to the territorial legislature. His political career took him to the Beltway, where he succeeded Dan Inouye in Congress after Inouye was elected to the Senate. He was Hawaii's congressman until 1976, and then Senator Hiram Fong retired, and he ran against Patsy Mink for the vacant seat. One of his major achievements in the Senate was co-sponsoring the bill that established the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. A writer of poetry and proponent of peace, he was also instrumental in creating the designation of the National Poet Laureate. Our quiz question for today, who was he? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Videos about a group of teenagers in Hilo allegedly calling themselves the Score Gang are making their way around the Internet. Parents have been taking to social media to vent their frustration over alleged assaults, threats, and violence against their kids and others on the, in the community. Take a listen. Hello, guys. I want to jump on here real fast. Talk about my post, bro, with this Score Gang. Because going around town, talking about mobbing people or actually going around mobbing people stabbing people shooting guns in public threatening our kids in their schools bro next week friday 
going to be on, going to have a protest. Um, you should all come down after school hours. Um, spread awareness, but we got to do this as a community. We have to put an end to this. So, apparently, score gang is what they're called, right? According to VP of my child's school, okay? They they think it's okay to mob an uncle, hit him with a two-by-four, shoot gun, five shots round, right? Or they think it's okay for, hmm, last week, mob kids with one gun and get away with it. Hilo residents Casey Le Sabate Haoneo and Brandy Fontes say their children were threatened by the gang. The conversations Russell Subiano caught up with them at a cafe in Hilo this morning to talk about their experience. I know that you posted a few videos on your social media where you talked about what happened to your daughter and niece. Can you walk us through that timeline, please? So it was last week Wednesday. It was during recess, second recess. They're walking around. They were going to go sit next to their friends. And I guess a couple of them held a knife to her. Exchanged a few words. Was trying to get her to take off her sweater. Told her that they own Hawaii. They own Hawaiians. And of course, my daughter stood her ground. And then, you know, being my niece was with her. They were also waving the knife back and forth to both of them, you know. So my daughter just made a scenario in her head of, what she's going to do and how she's going to do it to get the knife out of this person's hand. But luckily, someone took the corner, so he ended up leaving. Nothing was reported until after that day, being they were afraid to say something because of what they've seen in schools themselves. Did the threat take place on school ground or somewhere else? On school grounds. On school grounds, okay, okay. And Brandy, did you have a child with a similar experience? Not as bad as hers, but my daughter attends the school as well. And she got a text message from one of her friends saying that he's scared for my daughter's life. So my daughter kept asking why, what's wrong. And so he said that he heard that there's going to be a shooting and my daughter's name and others got mentioned in the shooting. So my daughter also told me this the next day, and I saw the text message. I went down to the police station. I filed a report, terroristic threatening in the second degree, just to have on file. But prior, two weeks prior to that, I had to pull my child out of school for things that were going on. I don't, don't want to speak about it right now, but it's bullying. So what do you guys know about these kids that are in this gang? Did your kids talk about who is in it? Are these local kids? Are these adults that are part of this gang? What do, what do you guys know about the people that are in the gang? So I'm just learning about them now, gradually now. Right. But in the past, you know, my daughter did mention about this gang, but I never, it never dawned on me. It never, I never thought anything of it, how, like, how serious it is right now. So when it did happen to her and she was visibly afraid already, that's when... I have to step in and be like, okay, my daughter's serious. There is a gang going on and, you know, this is what's happening. And for me, uh, I just want to take a positive approach to find a solution so that we don't have this in the community, right? Yeah. You know, the children supposed to get along and feel safe, feel safe, um, no matter where they're at, whether at school, at home, in the community. Casey, do you have any idea why this gang is doing what they're doing? Do you know if it's related to like a social media challenge or do you think this is just a group of kids acting out in a certain way? It starts from within the home, right? So they could be going through a lot. You know, maybe they don't have the support to guide them and lead them in the right direction. As for their social media, they could be doing it out of attention, right? Because all the attention is on them now. They're posting and sharing, you know, more games. Exposure, attention, letting fear get out to the island oh, no, that so they're here. That's what I'm thinking. That's what they're doing. What has been the response from the police? I think both of you had mentioned that complaints have been filed with the police about this gang. What's been the yes. response so far? So we were able to have a meeting with a lieutenant there. They are doing what they can do. They cannot pinpoint who it is, but... They are doing everything that they can to keep our community safe because, 
you know, as some people, they look at it like, oh, the police not doing nothing. It's not doing anything about it. But they are. They really are. You know, when they have encounters with them and they have to go and meet with a complaint with these group of people, you know, they don't care. They they attack the officers as well, okay, so, you know. So it's, it's out of hand. And, you know, they are doing everything that they can and. You know, yesterday there was an incident on the phone with the police officers, and luckily that they were able to get a police on site at the school. So they they're doing everything that they can. You know, they're reaching higher, getting to the chief for HPD as well to hear us and let us be heard about what's going on because this is serious in the community and everywhere. And I just want to know about the rally that's coming up on Friday. I know the community is organizing a peaceful rally at the Kamehameha statue in Hilo Bayfront. Can you talk about what the plans are for the rally and what you hope will come out of it? So for the rally, for us, it's mainly how to bring and keep our schools safe. How can we as a community, as concerned parents, help with protecting our kids? And not just our kids, but everyone's kids, everyone's schools. You know, so if we can reach the top, for every community on each island or even in the mainland, then this is what I want for us to all come together to keep our kids safe in school, make it safer again, implement more security, police officers on site, maybe even metal detectors, you know. Or volunteering at schools. Yep, or volunteering at schools. Something, that's the awareness that I we're trying to bring, you know, for the kids. That's what it is. And of course, you know, stop the violence, stop the gangs, but concernly, mainly for the kids of their protection. Yeah. Okay. Brandy, any final thoughts? Just adding on to what this Friday's rally. So we want to keep in mind that when we attend the rally, whoever's going to attend, and we welcome everybody, every race. We're not discriminatory of anybody. We want to make sure that we're coming with good intentions, positive vibes, and aloha for everyone who attend. You know, we're we're there for a peaceful rally, no violence, no, you know, no fights and whatnot. So we wanna yeah, we wanna come together, bring everybody together and try and find a solution to the problems. And we, we welcome everybody's input there at that time as well. And we wanna encourage the parents who have children that have been bullied or had some type of violence at school or within community to come forward and don't be scared. Don't, don't be scared, you know, um, the more we can get parents and the children involved, the better the outcome and the more we can find a solution for everybody to just get along already. Okay. I'm going to add in one Go more. Ahead. So also, it is two to four down at Bayfront. Sure. We would like everyone to try and get there early. I know it's going to be a little bit hard because we do have to pick up kids from school, but we do want to open up with a prayer a prayer for everyone's safety while we're out there and pray for everyone's kids while they're in schools and everywhere that they are. Thank you so much for your time, Casey Lay. Thank you so much, Brandy. Appreciate your time. Thank you so Thank much you for having much. us. Appreciate it. We've been hearing from Hilo residents Casey Lay, Sabate Haanio, and Brandy Fontes. They were talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. The settled score peaceful uh, rally to end the violence with gangs will take place this Friday, March 10th, at the Kamehameha statue at Hilo Bayfront from 2 to 4 p.m. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school in Honolulu, educating with a focus on stewardship and community. Now enrolling, seeqs.org. From the return of in-person events to the diverse voices you hear on HPR every day, there's so much to celebrate. See for yourself with our annual report, reaching your email inbox next week. Not on our email list yet? Sign up at hawaiipublicradio.org slash newsletter.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Fledging Farm on Maui won a $10,000 grant from Dove's Chocolate last year. The Hiaapana was, na- uh, was named uh, one of three Instagram winners across the country in a contest to boost female entrepreneurs and small businesses. Apana talked with us recently about that win and how Dove's is continuing to help with an Indiegogo fundraising campaign. It's to jumpstart a food production hub on the Valley Isle. Poli Poli Farm says it's all about regenerative agriculture. You could say it grows gently, caring for the earth and its approach to food production, a far cry from factory farming that can take a toll on the soil and water resources. She recalls hearing the good news about winning the first round of the Dubs Instagram. It's always exciting to hear great news like that, but I got to say the timing of it was pretty remarkable. I found out that we won the grant the same week that we lost many of our crops due to a storm. And so it was just a real boost for us as farmers during a real kind of panicky time for us and, and a real tough season on the farm. That was something that really bridged that those next few months for us. Well, share with our listeners where your farm is located. We're located in a region called Nava'eha, and that's translated as the Four Great Waters. Our farm is fed from one of those Four Great Waters over here in Waihu, and the name of our farm reflects the name of the Ili, which is like a land section within our Ahupua, and that is Poli Poli. You know, after being then flooded out, you get this gift from heaven <laughs> saying, we're going to help you get back on your feet again. Yeah. And that was really big for us, not only the financial boost, but just kind of that emotional boost, you know, knowing that we had help on the way. And, and also we had a huge outpouring of support from our community as well. So just like the storm kind of came through and swept us um, up, so did the community response. So that was a really big part of it as well, besides the financial, just having that support. Um, and that's what's so exciting about what's happening this year with Dove, you know, they're continuing that support for myself and the other women um, who were selected and empowering us to raise money for our own projects as we move forward. So that first year, you know, they were really um, infusing a bit of money into our project, but this year they're kind of giving us an opportunity to, to go out and reach for our goals ourselves. And so that's really exciting. It's kind of been a two-part Kokua effort on, on Dove's part. So what's your goal with this scale-up to the second level? For the campaign and for the scale-up, we're raising money to build a food processing hub on the farm. And that's something that was always in our plan. But with this opportunity with Dove, it's suddenly kind of just right in front of us now. And so it's really perfect timing to introduce these ideas to our community. And it's just been really exciting to to kind of put it out there. And, you know, just like community came up around us after the storm, the same is happening with this project. So it's just really exciting to go outside of, you know, conversations between just my husband and I and put it out there. Well, talk about the types of crops that you're growing on your farm. You know, I mean, you folks bought this parcel there in Maui. And it was around the pandemic, if I recall, and you said that you and your husband both lost your office jobs, right? Yeah, actually, my husband and I were both born and raised on Maui. We followed traditional career paths. So I was a journalist and he was a project manager at a commercial construction company. And we, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, we started becoming interested in what was in our food. And so we kind of just took it into our own hands to plant a garden bed. And that was our first real kind of spark that led to us having a farm. And so in those last 10 years, we just became sort of obsessed with growing food. And then in 2017, we purchased the three acres that we have our home and farm on today. But at the time, we had to keep our full-time jobs as we developed the farm. And so when we both found ourselves unemployed during the pandemic, we thought, well, you know, this is the time to do it. We, wouldn't, we didn't want to save it till retirement or 
you know, kind of put off our farm dreams any longer. And so in a lot of ways, the farm is a pandemic baby. The pandemic was a big turning point for us because, you know, during that time, we were able to really just put our full-time efforts into the farm. Previous to that, it was split between our full-time jobs and we would farm at night or we'd farm on the weekends. So since the pandemic, being able to put all of our energy into the farm, that's been really major and it, we've really seen it with the support that we've gotten from Dove and other grants and, and just the community. So I think just being able to really dedicate 100% of our efforts into the farm has made all the difference. We hear this term regenerative, you know, as it applies to tourism and agriculture. So what does that mean to you and your family who are out there, you know, working on the Aina? Mm. So for us, regenerative agriculture is really simple. It means leaving a place better than you found it. And so we do a lot of things agriculturally to make that happen. But one of the biggest inspirations for us is agroforestry systems. And so it's really combining forestry principles into an agricultural system. And so we're growing an ecosystem as opposed to rows of a single kind of crop. So what that looks like is you have multiple layers of this ecosystem, starting with the plants kind of on the ground. And then you have the plants kind of in that middle story, and then as well as that upper canopy. And so for us, it's really kind of growing a system that works cohesively together and regenerates itself. And our agroforests are centered around the breadfruit tree or the ulu tree. And so what types of products are you producing there on the farm? Our focus are what's known as canoe plants. And so those were some of the first crops that were brought over by the first Polynesian voyagers in their canoes. And we have ulu, or breadfruit, which is at the center of our agroforest. We also have maia, bananas, we have coal, sugarcane, and mamaki as well, which is not a canoe crop, it's endemic, so it was here before those first Polynesians. And so as you start to raise funds for this food hub, you know, what's your end goal? I think our biggest goal is accessibility. As a farmer and as a vertically integrated business, we've seen the power and the pain of accessibility. I mean, what happens when it's easy to get these foods into people's bellies and also kind of how it gets stuck along the food system. So for us, we take our harvest, we prepare them minimally into healthy products, and then we get them into packaged form so people can tear open a bag and start to enjoy those things. And for us, the food hub is a key part of that because, you know, that's a way to get it into a form where people can, can be familiar with it. You know, years ago, my husband, Brad, he became obsessed with ulu. I don't know why, but he kept wanting to purchase ulu. He kept wanting to kind of figure out how to, to cook it and consume it. And it was a disaster. <laughs> and he kept making these dishes that just were pretty horrible, frankly. And at one point I turned to him and I said, okay, that's it, no more ulu. You know, we're wasting money. Ulu is junk. I don't like ulu. And so I gave him one more try and he made an amazing meal and he sort of saved our relationship with ulu. But it just goes to show that because we were uneducated, about what to do with the food. We weren't sure when it was mature or the right time to cook it. We almost had a really negative association with ulu and that almost you know, severed that relationship. And I think that's what happens to some people, you know, when they get these foods that they're unfamiliar with, if they aren't able to sort of figure it out, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. So we wanna avoid that by kind of taking that guesswork out out of the picture for them. And so that's why this is really important because for us, it's not just about growing more food. It's about getting those foods to the consumers in a way that they can understand and appreciate. And that's why the food processing hub is so important. It's that missing link in our opinion. Okay, so folks want to help you on your journey toward this goal. The fundraising effort goes through March. March 16th. The good news is even if we don't reach our goal, mm -hmm. um, we get to take whatever we raised mm -hmm. and put that toward this food hub. So this is really just the beginning of our campaign and it's sort of like the introduction to these ideas that we're, we're trying to bring forth. But yeah, if, if anybody wants to get involved, they can either do it through the Indiegogo campaign or just reaching out to us.
That was Lahia Apana of Poli Poli Farms on Maui. It focuses on growing canoe plants and aims to make local food more easily available to customers as part of its mission. Look for links on our website later today. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name a Hawaii member of the greatest generation. He was one of many Second World War veterans uh, who served with distinction in combat and came back to the territory of Hawaii to remake its social structure and propel it towards statehood. Kauai High School and the University of Hawaii were his alma maters. His political career took him to the United States Congress in 1962 and later the Senate in 1976. He served until his death in 1990. He kept his sense of humor throughout his Senate service, and it came in handy when then Secretary of State Alexander Haig asked him at a Washington reception if he spoke English. Well, he did, and rather well, and promoted his love of literature by lobbying successfully for the creation of a U.S. Poet Laureate position. Masuyuki Matsunaga was his birth name, but it's the one he chose after the war, which is part of the organization named for him, Spark M. Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution. That is today's quiz, and congrats to Curtis from Molokai. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. Sometimes it seems like the news industry is one big runaway train headed way too fast, destination unknown. I'm Elsa Chang. At All Things Considered, we plan our daily voyage carefully and take the time to see the important sights along the way. Don't worry, we'll still get you where you need to go. All Things Considered from NPR News. Enjoy the journey. Weekdays at 4 p.m. Brandy Nalani McDougal is the new Hawaii State Poet Laureate. McDougal is from Maui and the first woman selected for the two-year term. She is the author of Salt Wind, Kamakani Pa'akai. Her forthcoming book, Aina Hanau Birthland, is inspired by her daughters and will be released by the University of Arizona Press in May. The conversation Stephanie Hahn sat down with McDougal to talk about her plans as a new poet laureate. My overall vision is actually to put poetry out there as a space of healing and as a as a strategy for healing and working through trauma and also working with Aina or being a part of land and water, being outside, reconnecting with land and water, alongside connecting with our own stories and poetry, how both of those together are so healing for all of us. And in, in this time and space where so many of us are, are in need of healing, um, it's really something that's connected to my own personal um, history. Um, I feel that poetry has saved my life in many ways, and I think it could really make a huge difference for many other people, especially coming out of this intense time of isolation and of fear and confusion that COVID brought, but also the ways in which it really exacerbated folks who are already perhaps vulnerable to various um, personal family and, and, and childhood traumas of their own. What is it about poetry that can metaphorically or literally save a life? Yes, thank you for that question. Well, I can speak from my own personal experience that what made a difference for me was being able to confront that trauma, um, childhood trauma head on, and thinking about 
the stories that I would often tell myself already in my head about it, but to be able to actually get it out of your head, <laughs> get, get it out in maybe perhaps images that are haunting you or memories that are coming back that reinflict that trauma um, and, and could lead to depression or, or anger or all sorts of other things that continue to kind of impact your life. And I'm speaking of, in particular, childhood trauma that and the ways it can continue to impact your life well into adulthood. Have, having the ability to be able to articulate those stories or even just to write down those memories or those images that are haunting you, it, there's such a relief that comes with that. Actually kind of facing and confronting it rather than suppressing it. As many of us feel in our own lives, just suppressing trauma doesn't mean it goes away. Right. It, it, there are ways in which it kind of crops up and, and could lead to destructive behavior or self-destructive behavior or other sorts of issues that end up kind of inflicting more trauma on yourself or perhaps even others. So poetry becomes a way to kind of hold that trauma outside of you and for you to be able to then confront it and work through it in a healthy way. So how does a person learn how to be honest on the page? This is a question a lot of writers have. To me, this is the mark of the difference between a trained good writer and a great writer, is how the writer is vulnerable on the page. And so how does one learn that? Oh, Can that be taught? That's such a great question. Thank you for that. I think it can be taught, but there is certainly a kind of evolution that needs to take place, uh, a kind of growth um, that you need to undergo as a writer. And I think it can be accelerated growth <laughs> to a certain extent if you're willing to be brave and face it. So often when we're, when we're starting to write, there's almost a fear of being honest, a fear of being vulnerable because writing can be a space of trauma in and of itself, right? There are ways in which we might have experienced being told we aren't good writers or um, being made fun of for maybe taking a risk, even telling um, the truth about something early on in our lives. So being able to be vulnerable in that space or through that medium can feel like a huge risk. And in that sense, you might want to try to hide it. One of the many lessons I learned from one of my mentors, Garrett Hongo, was that there are ways in which writing writing ends up revealing your truth without you even knowing it, <laughs> without you even intending it sometimes. Yes. There's ways in which it's a medium that we don't always have complete control over. Parts of ourselves, even like the darkest parts of ourselves might even come out in our writing without our uh, wanting it to. You kind of understand that at a certain point and you kind of feel, well, if that's gonna happen anyway, I need to be able to be brave and just face it head on. I need to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling right now, or this is the truth that's come from that, even if it hurts, you know, or even if it perhaps might even hurt other people, you know, to a certain degree. But perhaps it's a truth that needs to be stated nevertheless, right? Right, very true. So what do you see as the qualities of poetry in the oceanic region? How is the poetry being shaped by the poetry of the people of the Pacific. In the 21st century, whoever governs the Pacific is really going to be controlling the global order. Here we are. So what are the contributions that you feel the people of the Pacific are making? What are the special qualities? There is a poet in every Pacific Islander household. <laughs> <laughs> um, throughout the Pacific. I, I don't think that's not an overstatement at all. In fact, there might be more than one. And often it comes about because of our connection to uh, oratory. 
all of us grow, have grown up with an uncle who gives just amazing poetic prayers, you know, to bless the food. Um, that was my that was actually my grandfather, who I have in mind for that. Um, or we might grow up with folks who are musicians and have um, you know written songs, like my my father. It's very common for many of our many of our elders to be excellent at storytelling and, and to be raised with the with legends and stories at different mo'olelo, mo'olelo connected to aina especially. Um, so all of that is very rich and very strong in our culture. And I'm really proud that that continues to be the case. And so we're a very literary people, even if we have not been able to publish that literature in the same way that other groups have. And I would argue that a lot of that also comes from colonial silencing that we've experienced uh, in Hawaii, in particular, the uh, silencing of Olalo Hawaii, but also in the ways in which our work struggled for a long time to even be published. There was a lot of censorship of, of Hawaiian viewpoints dating from the Hawaiian Kingdom era um, as American colonial encroachment began. This continues to be a struggle, even if there are certain ways in which that's changing. What's been wonderful to see within the Pacific are a lot of folks actually taking on projects to make sure that our communities are more visible through um, literature. So uh, starting presses, for example, um, or creating venues or events that make sure that our poets and artists are are very um, visible and are front and center for um, any kind of issue that needs that kind of distillation and synthesis, which I would argue all of our issues do. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Do you cross genres with your writings? Do you write lyrics? Do you come from a family that practiced hula? How did you come to this form? There's no one else who was a poet, <laughs> I should say, right. or who would have called themselves a poet in my family. And in fact, to some degree, there was a lot of fear around my choosing to take that route. Um, I had a lot of family members that were like, why are you studying poetry? What are you going to do with that? You know, there You're was a lot of make concern. Money, right? Yeah. And, and to some degree, I mean, they're, they're kind of right. I mean, poetry <laughs> does tend to be impoverished financially <laughs> for many of us there but we like as poets we like to say that keeps our art pure you know and and uncorrupted <laughs> yeah so without that unfortunately i i don't have that kind of music ability i would love to be able to play an instrument where then i could feel like i could create a song i just i don't know how to do it <laughs> uh, i would love to take a um, a songwriting class I took hula lessons when, as a as a kid, I'm not super skilled at that either. <laughs> Even though I tried, um, but I, you know, I have so much aloha for people who, um, you know, have that talent in them. I've also taken classes on on oli, and that's also something that I would like to kind of evolve further on. A lot of backgrounds or, or maybe attempts at, at various related arts, but poetry was what ended up sticking with me, and, and perhaps that has to do with, from a young age, I was I was often the, the kid that ended up being kind of surrounded by adults who would tell stories around me, and then would sometimes even tell stories to me, and some of which, you know, I felt so sophisticated to hear because I could tell maybe these weren't stories a child should hear. But I became kind of a receptacle for these stories, and I could feel their power. Can you uh, read us a poem? Sure. Your choice. Um, so this poem is called Water Remembers. Waikiki was once a fertile marshland, ahupua'a, mountain water gushing from the valleys of Makiki, Manoa, Palolo, Wailai, and Wailupe to meet ocean water. 
seeing such wealth, Kanaka planted hundreds of fields of kalo, uala, ulu, and yuka, built fish ponds in the muliwai. Waikiki fed Oahu people for generations so easily that its ocean raised surfers, hailed the highest of ali'i to its shores. Waikiki is now a miasma of concrete and asphalt, its waters drained into a canal dividing tourist from resident. The mountain springs and waterfalls trickling where they are allowed to flow and left stagnant elsewhere, pollulate with staphylococcus. In the uplands, the fields have long been dismantled, their rock terraces and heiau looted to build the walls of multi-million dollar houses with panoramic diamond head and or ocean views. Closer to the ocean, hotels fester like pustules, the sand stolen from other aina to manufacture the beaches, seawalls maintained to keep the sand in, so suntan-oiled tourists can laze on what never was, what never should have been. No one is fed plants and fish from this aina now. Its land value has grown so that nothing but money can be grown, its waters unpotable, polluted. Each year, as heavy rainfalls flood the valleys, spill over gulches, slide the foundations of overpriced houses, invade sewage pipes and said brown water runoff to the ocean, the king tides roll in, higher in their warming, lingering longer, and breaking through sandbags and barricades, eroding the resorts. This is not the end of civilization, but a return to one. Only the water insisting on what it should always have, spreading its liniment over infected wounds. Only the water rising above us, reteaching us wealth, and remembering its name. Beautiful and powerful. Mahalo. Randy Nalani McDougall is Hawaii's second poet laureate. She spoke with HPR Stephanie Hahn about her plans to offer poetry workshops and readings over her two-year term. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Hilo Police about how they're dealing with the gang problem. Have you noticed an uptick in gang activity in your neighborhood? Have a story about bullying to share? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast online or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Conversation.